Good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to experience some powerful words this morning, uh, whether it's the Spirit resting on us, uh, whether it's Christ reigning over us, uh, or whatever else it might be. And I just felt a nudge to say that if anyone is interested in what on earth being filled with the Spirit is about. If that's quite an alien concept to you, if it's been a while since you've desired that, speak to myself, speak to anyone on the uh, first row, or speak to the person you came with and they can direct you. But I just felt a little bit of a nudge to say, if there's a little bit of a desire or a hunger to be filled afresh, then we can easily pray for you, expect that to happen, uh, and see what happens when the Holy Spirit comes on you, because walking and keeping in step with him is all about being filled regularly uh, with him. Uh, right, so then, for those of you who haven't been with us at all, this is your first time with, with us, uh, but also for the rest of us, because it's obviously been the Christmas holidays and it's been New Year, and we may have totally forgotten our series in Gideon and what on earth has been going on. So very briefly, before we kick off with the next in our sermon series, let's just remind ourselves of what we've been reading about. So we've been looking at a person called Gideon. The life of Gideon is found in the book of Judges, which is in the Old Testament. And basically at the time, there were the Israelites who, who occupied their own land called Canaan. It was the promised land that our God gave to the Israelites back in Old Testament times. And Gideon was of one of the 12 tribes that made up Israel. And at the time, a foreign nation called Midian, along with the Amalekites, which was a different uh, nation, foreign nation, but it was led by Midian. They were attacking and imposing themselves on Israel, wanting to take the land, wanting to absolutely pillage them completely. So Gideon and his family, he's doing his work, he's uh, beating the wheat, and he's doing it in secret, as much of the rest of Israel were doing in Israel, um, in the wine press, hiding out in secret, so that when the Midianites did attack, which they did regularly, uh, him and his family wouldn't have their food stolen, their women stolen, their men recruited for the army, and just be left desolate, which was what the Midianites were doing to all the different tribes in Israel. So Gideon is in the wine press. The Lord appears to him, calls out his identity, who he's going to be, mighty man of valor, and how he's going to lead the army of Israel to attack Midian and reclaim their possession of it afresh. Now Gideon goes through a few different circumstances where he's really attacked with fear. He's filled with the spirit. He's given several promises from the Lord that he'll be with him and that he's called him out to lead him in this. He's uh, come to the sign of the fleece. You guys might remember that more than anything where he lays the fleece down. He's had two miraculous signs that's confirmed his calling and now he's gathered several tribes in Israel and they are about to camp ready for the attack on Midian and the Amalekites. And as we've been going through this, the main principles I've been wanting us to take away is the fact that we are weak, but God is mighty. Story of Gideon is a key biblical story that reminds us that we are weak, frail, and fragile ultimately, 
but that, that isn't a bad thing necessarily because we trust in a great, strong and mighty God. And of course, as we've been transitioning here into the granary, which is when we started this series, it's just been really encouraging to just read it, follow through it and see how we can apply the different things Gideon went through in his life to this new trans transitory, if that's the right word, season as we come into the granary and we continue to build it up and to see what God's going to do this in this next season. Right then, so Gideon, weak person, mighty gods. Now, this is number six in the series. We, we are getting there. Well done for everyone who's stuck around, hasn't left us for the 9.15, 11.15. Yeah, joking, joking. <laughs> uh, but this is number six now. And I wonder who here has seen the film, always a film reference with me somewhere. I will find it, a place for it somewhere in my messages. The film 300. Show of hands, 300. Mostly the men, I'm just saying, not one lady. Debbie, you've seen it, that's right. Uh, so the film was released in 2006. It was this modern cinematic retelling of a Greek event called the Battle of Thermopylae, the Battle of Thermopylae in ancient Greece. It was met with mixed to average reviews, but at the time I was 16, and when I went to see it several times in the cinema, I loved it and couldn't care less. It was amazing. Short sword, shields, crazy stuff that actually didn't happen, but, you know, it's art's taking a little bit of liberty. Uh, the film's actually inspired, little fact for you, by a graphic novel. So some guy thought, oh, I like that Greek event. I'm going to turn that into a comic book or a graphic novel. Uh, and then someone else thought, oh, I'm going to direct that and turn it into a film. And then you've got this epic film called 300s. Both are fictionalised retellings of the event, so they actually happened, but both versions of it, the book and the film, heavily dramatised what happened. But as a lover of Greek mythology growing up and to this day, this was one of those early exposures to those Greek myths and stories. This one was actually an event, so this one wasn't even mythological, but if you watch it and if you read it, you'll be amazed something like that even happened. So the Battle of Thermopylae, very briefly... Basically, you've got a city-state back in ancient Greece called Sparta. And then you've got this other empire, growing empire, called Persia. And this empire is run by King Xerxes. Uh, and he's believed back in those days to have been uh, a god-man, so both man and god. And they are just occupying different cities, villages and states, growing their army. And this King Xerxes is taking all the power. Now, they send some envoys to Sparta, and for those of you who have uh, seen the film, you're remembering the epicness of these scenes. Uh, they come to Sparta to King Leonidas's city-state. King Leonidas, think of like Leo or Lion. Ferocious guy, he's ruling and reigning at the time. Envoys come and he's like, no chance, you are not taking over our city-state. Uh, we will fight you. But, his governors, the council of those times, they said no, because they were actually in cahoots with Xerxes and ancient Persia. They didn't mind being taken over because they wanted to be part of the big boys club, as it were. They wanted to be part of the crowd and the gang that was ruling at that time and not go through all the battle, all the war, and subsequently all the death that would ensue if they were to do it. But King Leonidas stood his ground and he said, no, 
but we won't go against the council. I'll just take my 300 men out and we'll just go for a walk. See you in three days. I feel like I just need to stretch my legs and go out, maybe for a bit of training with these 300 soldiers. We're not going to do anything. We'll see you in three days. They knew what was about to happen. They went to where the Persians were infiltrating and marching towards with every intent that they were going to fight an army of, I kid you not, this is the fact, thousands upon thousands. It was the powerful empire state of the time. 300 Spartan soldiers. They got to this place called the Hot Gates. The Hot Gates was a narrow corridor in Sparta uh, and it was just very, very small and strategically a bit iffy about how they thought they were going to win this. But their plan was, if they go to this place called the Hot Gates, this narrow mountain corridor, the Persians will keep coming, keep coming, and they'll just start hacking, 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 because they can't all come at them at once. They have to draw them in bit by bit by bit, and the Spartans would take them out. Well, ultimately, they were noble, they were honourable, and to be honest, all of them knew what was going to happen. None of them would come out alive. One person came out of it alive, told their story, and therefore the story's gone on ever since. All the Spartans died at the bottle of Battle of Thermopylae, uh, and Xerxes and Persia continued to stampede, but obviously, eventually, as all empires do, and I'm sure our will one day, maybe, uh, come to an end. But the point of that is, they weren't the original 300. They weren't the original 300. There's a biblical 300 that we're about to read in this story. So I just want to touch on it now and see what the scriptures say. So it's in Gideon, chapter 7, verses 1. And we're just going to read 1 to 3. Feel free to follow along in the scriptures if you wish to, but don't worry if not. It won't be on the screen. No. So it says this, Gideon chapter 7, verse 1 to 3. What am I saying? Gideon. Oh, well done. Well done. Judges. Judges. <coughs> Fair enough. Thank you. Uh, judges, chapter one. Early in the morning, Jerub Baal, that is Gideon, he was given a different name, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. Now, announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. Now, before we ended 2021, we left Gideon receiving reassurance from the Lord that he would indeed save Israel from Midian and the Amalekites should they go to war, which is now the plan. Gideon's mustering everyone ready to go. So Gideon's called out to several of the tribes of Israel to follow him into battle, and they've answered his call with a resounding yes, like the Spartans in Greece. So as we've seen before, but it's worth repeating again because it shows up all the time in the story of Gideon, and it shows up all the time in our own lives, if we're being honest with ourselves. Fear, once again, is a great enemy of Gideon and the Israelites and is of us in our lives as well. 
Debilitating fear was so prevalent in 22,000 Israelite soldiers that they chose to leave the battle. Now, this was all part of God's sovereign providential plan, but nonetheless, fear gripped them to the point where they took that opportunity because they didn't want to be in the battle. They wanted to go back to the comfort and the safety of their own homes. Nonetheless, in God's economy, subtraction doesn't always result in defeat. What God may take away from you doesn't always mean it's a bad thing, but can be for our greater good in the long run. Fear is not so great as to defeat the power of God at work in us. Don't let fear become a stronghold in your life. Don't allow it to take you out of the battle. Now, you've got your own battles to face. It may not be on the same scale as swords and sandals and shields, but we've all got things we're going to that we have to face. And we do also have things to face as a church. And fear is a key thing that can easily pull us out of it. We want to run to safety. We want to run to the comfort. We want to run to where the pressure is off. But actually, God's calling us to greater glory. Okay? That's for you as an individual, what you're going through. But for us as a church, there's great things ahead of us if we don't get off, if we don't allow fear to be a stronghold in our life and take us out of the battle. The battle is our gospel mission and kingdom advance as a church against the demonic work of the enemy. And just like Tobin was sharing with us in his contribution, Satan has a plan as well. He wants to do things, but Jesus rules. Jesus is on the throne. So it's up to us to gather around that by choice and to be part of his army and engage in his battle, whatever that might look like for us. So let's keep in the battle. The Lord was aware that such a large army with all its military resources, and Israel did have good resources because they were established in the land and they were themselves a profitable uh, and, and resourceful nation at that time. That would be too great a temptation for Israel to boast in, to boast in their own ability to defeat the enemy. So to prevent a swelling of pride over their own efficiency and capabilities, God removes the 22,000, significantly reducing uh, Israel's army's power. But more importantly, and hear this, to challenge the people's trust and where it lied. God reduced the numbers in the army to challenge where the army really put their confidence in. Who did they put their trust in? Was it Gideon as a great mighty man of valor that he by now is developing into? Wasn't at the start, but he is now. Is it in themselves and their own fighting ability? Is it in their togetherness as an army? Or, and this is the point that God's trying to push against them, is it in him alone? Now, do you remember a time when you were challenged to trust God in spite of everything being against you. Perhaps your uni studies, if you're a student here today, became overwhelming. And don't think, just as an aside, 
If you're someone else hearing that, mm, that's not much of a problem. Why have they got to be fearful about that? Man, wait till they grow up. Wait till they face things when they're a bit older. If it's your thing, then it's a, it's a great thing for you to face. If it's your thing, it's your thing. Okay? No one's got a greater fear than someone else. The circumstance might have worse consequences, maybe, or might be particularly difficult. But if you're going through something, it's your thing. And therefore, God cares about that. And God wants to help you in that. So if you're a student, the work's overwhelming. The coursework is piling on you. The deadlines are getting through to you. Or you've failed the odd exam or test. And you're wondering, what am I going to do? How am I going to reach that career that I've got a passion for or I want to do? Have you trusted, have you trusted in God? Maybe your work became increasingly demanding and you had no way to resolve the problems. Again, you've got a deadline to meet some clients' demands, or you've got a colleague that is just difficult to work with. How are you going to get through it? Perhaps you're pulling your hair out, exhausted with little sleep, trying to manage your kids. The little girl that just walked away there is my daughter, and we found out she was, she was teething. She's been teething these past several days. We've been like, what's going on? She is just... She also, has, she also had a cold, so we were like, what's going on? Take, giving her LFTs, which is not fun for a one-year-old. Like, what on earth? And we find a little sharp vampire tooth, a little canine poking through, and we were like, ah, that's what it is. But the night times aren't fun. Night times are horrible. And, yeah, let's get through that, please, Lord, quickly. <laughs> um, or maybe you fell ill, and the sickness has just taken you down, or the recovery period is just long and drawn out and not what you expected. Whatever it is that's your thing, God cares about the fact it's your thing. But are you trusting him in spite of it? Amidst all that, whatever you're going through, in whom do you put your trust? In you or in him? God wanted to remind Gideon and demonstrate to Israel that he gives the victory by his own power and all they have to do is trust in him. You too. Power comes through trust. Our power to live our lives in all godliness, holiness, and righteousness. And our power to be a fruitful force for good in the gospel as Hope Church comes through trust. That's the foundation. Do we trust in the right person, Jesus? So let me just whiz forward in scripture briefly uh, to 2 Corinthians. And you don't have to follow this because I'm just going to read it very briefly. Paul writing to a church called Corinth at the time, and he said this, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake... I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's power is best on display for all to see when it's working through our weaknesses. It's not just when we're okay and we're putting our trust in God. What's more glorifying is when we are struggling and we're weak and frail and fragile, and we still choose to put our trust in God. Paul knew the secret to that. That wasn't a secret. It's available 
to us all. More than that, he delighted in it. Now, let's not, get mis- let's not have any misunderstanding. We don't search for weakness. We don't search for persecution. We don't seek out insults. But when they do come, because they will come, because we live in a fallen world and we ourselves are not perfect. And when they do come, we trust in God in spite of them and ride above the waves, as it were, with him. Paul knew that, and he boasted gladly in his weakness and littleness. He even delighted in them because he understood that God works most powerfully in and through him when he's trusting God in spite of his weaknesses. (coughs) Gideon and the army needed reminding that their victory would come through God's power at work in them in spite of their reduced numbers, that all they needed was to trust him, although they were limited We're limited, but we're still called to trust Jesus. Now, the next part and the last part of our section today. Uh, So chapter 7 still, but it's verse 4 to the end, verse 8. And scriptures say this. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say... This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them. There's the 300. It got there. I worked it. I worked it there. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. So... Here's another opportunity the Lord is taking to radically reduce the army's numbers. He's done it once and 22,000 left. He's going to do it again because Israel are still in a position where the temptation will be too great to boast in themselves and not in the Lord. So it gets whittled down to 300. Who would I pick? 300 Spartans or 300 Israelites? bit tempted to pick the 300 Spartans if you know anything about Spartan culture but the Israelites had a difference and it was the fact that God was with them the presence and person of God now some people have said that God chose the soldiers who lapped like dogs so that was tongue to water because they demonstrated alertness water tongue ready swords let's go if anything were to happen But others have said that God chose those who knelt and cupped the water because they too demonstrated being ready for battle and being quick to jump back up and get into the warfare. Really, no one actually knows. And when you're reading it, you're a bit like, how does that work? Like, who's who's lapping? Who's licking? Who's kneeling? Who's cupping? And it's just a bit... No one actually really knows, to be honest. But the point is, it's very likely God just wanted to do this because it was another method to strip down the army, whoever chose what. What's important is this. Will we reflect this army of 300 as a church, as Hope Church? 
here's the invitation, okay? Here's the invitation to all of us here. Will we join together as a faithful, not a fearful army? The 300 that stayed were faithful to God. The rest, you could say, were fearful. Will we join together as an obedient, not rebellious army? Uh, again, like Tobin was saying, are we going to submit to the Lord in all that he's called us to, the great things he wants to do in and through us? And will we join together as a God-glorifying, not self-exalting army? Faith, fear, faithful, not fearful. Obedient, not rebellious. God-glorifying, not self-glorifying. And this is what it comes down to for Gideon and his 300. Who will receive the glory? Who will get the attention, the fame, the praise, the acknowledgement? If I could use the language of our celebrity culture, if that's all right, not the best thing in the world, but uh, sometimes helpful to use with language. Who is the star of your life? Who is front and center, main stage, red carpet, all the lights are on them. They are the star of the show. Who is the celebrity main character of your story. Your life is a story. Your life has chapters. Some of you are in the early stages, some of you are in the middle stages, and some of you are in the later stages. Who or what does your entire existence resolve around? Who's, who do you orbit? Who's at the center? Whether we admit it or not, we all worship something. Don't forget that. Our society may think that they're either agnostic or atheistic, but everyone and everything worships something. Because to worship something is to occupy yourself with it, to give something of yourself, to give your money, your time, your energy, whatever that thing is that's the recipient of that, that is your God. Even though you may not, or the world I should say, hopefully we do, but the world would say, I don't believe in gods or deities. Well, you worship something. You cling to something. So we all give our time, our energy, our money, our love, our love to something. Is it your job? Is it your partner, husband, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend? Is it your social media status and followers? That's a big one in this day and age. <coughs> Is it your kids? Your wardrobe and appearance? Your house, your politics? Your stomach, don't hear much about that, but that is an idol. Is it your own comfort and safety? Yet for the Christian, the object of our worship, the star and celebrity of our life, the one who we live to glorify can only ever be the Lord Jesus Christ. He's over and above every one of those things which may be legitimate and that we should have a love and attachment to. I think of kids, I think of partners, of course. But over and all and above that, Jesus said, if you love these things ultimately over me, then you can't follow me. You can't truly follow me. So there's the question. Little, little resounding gong there for, for it to ring out as you go home. Where's my love at? Who is my love at, really, at the end of the day? And what better way to end than or come into land, give it, give it a close, than to look at Christ, the greatest example of the power of God working through the weakest and darkest moment in history, the death 
of Jesus, the death of the Son of God. He took on himself all our sin, and you've got sin. If no one believes in that, you've got sin. If we all fall short of the glory of God, disobedience, rebellion, and weakness, enduring the wrath of God and the punishment of hell that we deserved. We, I deserved that. You deserved that. All the world does. Seemingly Jesus dying weak and hopeless on a wooden, rugged cross, naked and humiliated and bloodied and mutilated. But God's power was at work in the weakest moment of history. The most powerful moment of history was simultaneously happening, happening in the weakest moment of a, the most important man, person in the world. God's power was at work in the blood, in the blood purposefully poured out for you and me. Jesus died and became that weakness so we could step into his strength, step into his power. What was foolishness and seemed stupid to the Gentiles, that's me and you, non-Jewish folk, what seems stupid and ridiculous to the point where a few years after this happens, there's, you can look at it on Google, there's some ancient graffiti that shows human of a man, uh, but the head of a donkey. I think it was a guy called Alexandra who graffitied it. He carved it out in those days because he didn't have spray paint, carved it into the wall, and the, and the text he carved was the Christian God. And, it was on, and this person was hanging on a cross with a donkey's head. Sorry, not to be rude or use language, but he was basically saying, your God is an ass. How could you let this person die on a cross? Why, how could you believe that your God would die on a cross? Where's the power and the strength in that? But what's blind to the people who aren't being saved is that God's love is so powerful that he allowed his son to die in all weakness for us so we could be strong, so he could be raised from the dead again. And what's offensive to the Jews and is offensive to people today? They'll, they'll let us say God, that's fine, because that's quite ambiguous. But we worship Jesus Christ as God, the one and only true God. It was actually the most powerful moment in history and is still powerfully working in us today and still works in people today. They may not know it, they may not realise it, but we're on a mission to give it to them and to share it with them. So in conclusion, if you'd like to know more about what Christ has done for you, again, just like being filled with the Spirit, Talk to me, person you came with, John and Jean at the bottom on the door, whoever is welcoming people. And let's find out what it means to be a disciple. Speak to us. Find out what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And what on earth is this cross and empty grave nonsense that you guys are giving your lives to? Find out why it's not nonsense. And it's good news. So to finish then, believe this. However small your contribution may be, however limited you think your gift is, However restricted or tiny you believe your abilities are, God uses them and uses you mightily. With God, a little is a lot. With God, he can use your little a lot for powerful ways. If you call hope home and you serve or give in whatever capacity, kids, welcoming, I've named some, the building work. I came in here last, yesterday and there was a work party, small steps, big consequences, worship, setup, PA, hope mums, small groups, whatever it can be. If you serve, if there's something you're doing and contributing to, you have unfathomable impact on what's going on in the life of this church. 
and the people generations in the future will thank you for it as we do for generations past when Hope Church was known and looked very different. So, finally, however small, insignificant or weak you believe you are, bring all that to God, trust him and watch him work through you powerfully and bring, bring glory to his name. Because with God, a little becomes a lot in his powerful hands. Let's be like Gideon and the 300, because we won't die like the Spartans did, but we will live forever when we give the little we've got and see it transformed. Amen, everyone. Amen. Josephine, over to yourself. We'd like to draw it to a close. We're going to draw it to a close. Come back again next week. It'll be lovely to see you all. Have a great week. If you want to connect with a small group, we also meet midweek as well. It's not just a Sunday to Sunday thing. Uh, so let us know if you're interested in connecting with one of our week, midweek small groups as well. But have a great Sunday. Don't rush off. Stay around because we're family with guests. Let's chat to each other. Okay. All right then. Bless you. See you guys soon.